Well, let's all stand and bring your Bibles up with you. Turn them to Luke chapter 19. And just find your way down to verse 28. And we'll read what we're going to study this morning to start off. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he came to pass that when he, speaking of Jesus, drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. As they were loosing the colt, indeed the owner of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they responded as they were directed to the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him, the colt, a young donkey, to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You may be seated. What we call Palm Sunday, uh, what is labeled in many Bibles as the triumphal entry, is, is the, the kickoff, the beginning of what we label Passion Week, some call Holy Week. It's the final week that Jesus will spend on the earth. In just a few days from now, on this Sunday, he's about to enter into Jerusalem. He will be placed on a cross. Next week, we will be celebrating the resurrection. Resurrection Sunday, Easter, is seven days away. Can you believe it? Yeah. The first service stood on their chairs, and we're doing this. I'm excited about it. And, um, but before we get there, we want to... We want to stop and we want to pause. We're going to break away from our Revelation study and we're going to consider some lessons outside the Eastern Gate. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the rest of this week, we're going to be looking at what happens once Jesus gets into the city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to look at this morning, three things. We're going to look at the place. What's the significance of this place? And we're going to look at the people. What is the significance of these people that gather? And then the purpose. What is the purpose of this man getting on a donkey, walking or riding through this crowd? What is the purpose of his interacting with the people outside of the gate? What is the purpose of his words? What he has to say outside the gate, moving through the crowd? 
And then we'll talk about, as we close, just the purpose of why he came. When we think about this, we know that it is the city of, of Jerusalem. This particular city, packed during Passover season with, you know, several times the normal population. Jews would commonly come to Jerusalem three times a year to commemorate their feast, Passover being at the top of the list. But Jerusalem, not always called that. It was a Jebusite city. Back in the Old Testament days, Jerusalem, we know as the name means peace, was not always a peaceful place. It was a place that we, we, we know as, well, this mountain. You that are going to go to this movie tomorrow night, this movie we rented the Regal for, we're going to see a, a reenactment that takes place at this place on a mountain where Abraham will, will walk his son Isaac on this three-day journey and, and attempt to sacrifice him as the Lord would, would, would ask him to. And of course, that wouldn't happen and the Lord will provide a sacrifice as he will say there. I don't want to blow the end of the movie, but uh, I think you guys know where it's going. But this mountain, known as, as Zion, this Jebusite city that David would, would conquer, and he would make this city Jerusalem, Zion, the capital of the kingdom. It would be known by this title, the City of David. Over 40 times in the New Testament, this location, this place, will be given that, that title, the City of David. Zechariah chapter 3 says it is called the City of Truth. In Revelation, we'll get to chapters 19 and 20 sometime next year or the year after, but we'll see it is the City of Gold. In Psalm 87, it is the city of God. A popular psalm, we've heard this psalm, Psalm 48, 1 through 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. I, um, I've always been fascinated with people that, that hold their, their city, whatever their city is. It's dear to them, and they are proud of their city. Maybe, maybe it's the city you were born in, uh, the city you're raised in, or the city that you currently reside. But the question is, if you're proud of a city, the question would be, why? And I would tell you that today, traveling through Israel, we'll be there in a couple of weeks, three or four weeks, actually five. Traveling through there, the people that reside there are very proud of their city. The tens of thousands of people that were drawn to this place, the city of David, Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, 32 AD on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus raises from the dead, they were very proud of their city. The question would be, well, why are you so proud of your city? Well, as it says there, the psalmist, 
It's beautiful in its elevation, 25 feet above sea level, surrounded by desert. It's this, and always has been, this jewel of God. First time I ever saw it, I wept. Not because, wow, that's such beautiful scenery and the architecture and all. No, no, no. I can remember as a little boy, I remember in elementary school, my pastor and his wife going on a trip. I remember raising money from the church to send them. I remember them coming back, and they had a slideshow. Remember the slideshows? Click next, click next, click next. And it was black and white, and I remember them pointing out to me all of these pictures of this city. And I remember as a little boy connecting some Bible stories to that. And I always kind of grew up wishing I could go. So the first time that I went, I've been there several times, I don't know, 10 times or so, but the first time I went, we were up north, went down south, came up from the Dead Sea, and we, we came through this tunnel, and, and um, the guides that we were with, they were saying, now when we come through this tunnel on the other side, you're going to look to your left, you're going to see the city of Jerusalem for the first time. And I remember, not just myself, but everybody on that bus weeping. I remember just believers weeping. To this day, when I go through that tunnel, I pull out my phone, I don't look at the city, I walk through and I, I video you weeping. Why? Didn't happen to me the first time I went to Rome. Didn't happen to me first time I went to any major city. But I, I was well aware, I was well informed of what has happened in that city and what will continue to happen in that city and God's future plan for that city, that place, the city of David, Mount Zion, set up on a hill. It's, it's special to these people. They're proud of it because it's the city of their God. It's the city of their king. The greatness of the city belongs to the Lord, not to the city. And it's also the joy of the whole earth. Not just the joy of the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. It is the joy of the all whole earth because of what is about to happen in that city. Because of salvation and what is provided for all mankind from that place, from that city. The church will be birthed in that city. The gospel that has changed you and I, the gospel that you heard can be connected back through people, through generations, to that very city. People first being transformed by the gospel, becoming light bearers of the gospel, to where you and I today have heard the gospel and had our lives renewed if you're born again. It's, it's the joy of the whole earth. And one day, Jesus will return, and he will rule and reign from that city. And there'll be a thousand years of peace. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Sion, this jewel. Psalm 132, 13 and 14, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my rest, resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I've desired. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. Therefore, I will make the horn of David grow. 
I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. All talking about the coming Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all of the nations will follow it and flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way. He shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation uh, shall not lift up a sword against a nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Speaking about the joy that will come upon the earth when the Prince of Peace returns and establishes his kingdom in that place for a thousand years. There is no place that compares with the city of Jerusalem. So now 2,000 years ago, 32 A.D., Jesus is about to enter in the city. He's going to, on this week, on the Thursday night of this week, he's going to have his disciples go to a place in that city and prepare a Passover meal. We will, we will do that on Wednesday night here. We'll set up this sanctuary, if you're new here, with tables, and we'll have a head table here, and we'll reenact that final Last Supper setting that Jesus had with his disciples. During Passover again, most believe that a city that would find about 500,000 people resigning in it on this particular Passover, Josephus and other secular historians said that there was over 2.5 million people. And just a few days earlier, maybe not even a week earlier, Jesus was a couple of miles away from this city. And he was in Bethany. And he would hear that a good friend of his, a family that he was close to, a family that he frequently visited, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and he had grown sick and he had died. And he was dead for four days. And Jesus took his time getting there, allowing his sickness to take his life so that everyone would see, that they would see the Son of Man be glorified. John chapter 11. He wanted everyone to know that he was God. So he was going to do something that only God can do. Raise someone from the dead. That happened just a week ago. And in John's account, it says that the Jewish leaders, they heard about this, they knew about this, and they saw that everybody was beginning to, the, it was the buzz around town a week ago, even to this very day, and that the Jewish leaders had come together and decided that they needed to put a hit on this man that Jesus had raised from the dead. They determined that we got to kill Lazarus. Well, I don't know how well that would have worked out with Jesus around, but they determined that the effect on the people of what Jesus had, had done by raising him from the dead, it needed to be tamped out. John 12, 17 and 18, it says that the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. Verse 18 says, For this reason, 
the people also met him. They came to find Jesus all week long. The buzz was out and people were trying to find Jesus because they had heard that he had done this thing. The Pharisees said, look, the whole world has gone after this man, Jesus. So in John 12, following that, verse 12, the next day a great multitude, speaking of this day, um, had come to the feast. So that week has gone by and now they've come to the feast. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so a lot of Jews are going to be coming just to commemorate the feast. But then it says, note, when many of them heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out. Jesus is on the other side of the hill. We're in La Habra. Imperial Highway is the Temple Mount. Behind us is Bethany and Bethphage. Comes up to a couple of his disciples and he goes, I got a mission for you. I want a couple of you to go into a, a city next to us, probably Bethphage. And he gives very succinct, very direct orders. He predicts the village. He predicts that when they walk into the village, there's going to be a young donkey, and he predicts that it's going to be a donkey that no one had ever ridden on before. And he predicts, as he instructs them to loose the donkey, that the master is going to probably say, hey, what are you doing? And he says, because that's going to happen with that prediction, you need to tell them that I, your master, has need of, of their donkey. Only divine omniscience could do this. Only deity could speak with such pre-meditation and prophetic accuracy. I wonder what it was like to be the disciples at this particular point in time, three and a half years walking with Jesus, and any time he had an assignment, I'm sure by now, watching the miracles that he did, every hand went up. I, I want to go. <laughs> I, I, I saw the look of Peter, James, and John when they came down from that mountain. I'd like, I want to hang out and do whatever you instruct me to do. And people in this room right now, 2,000 years later, who are familiar with Jesus working in and through their life, they live in that kind of anticipation. What was it like? I, the narrative doesn't give us all the details. The narrative shines... The spotlight on Jesus, on his omniscience, on his deity. But for two, two of the disciples, their names aren't even given to us. I, I believe it would have happened something along this. Hey, we got chosen. This is going to be great. What do you think was going on in their heart and in their mind and their conversation as they got close to that city? I'm sure they were like, man, as soon as we get into the city, you look to the right, you look to the left. And I'm sure one of them went, I can't believe it, but there it is. Look, right inside the village, as he said, there's a young donkey. And somehow they go in there and, and they, they begin to loose him. And I'm sure with anticipation, they're like, everything this guy predicts, 100% of his predictions come to pass. So I'm sure that as they begin to loose the donkey, that, that the... The, the guy was like, you lose the donkey, I'm going to watch for the owners because they're going to come right about now. 
And it happened just as Jesus said. What was that like? The owners come out. This ain't a good thing, by the way. If you were owned a donkey and someone was like in your, in your little crib like borrowing your donkey, you'd be like, hey, 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 what are you doing? I'm sure it was a little intense. Maybe it was like, hey, let me tell him. No, 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 I got this one. Hey, our master says that he has, has needed this donkey. And the next thing you know, it just shows them bringing the donkey to Jesus. There is something about being used by the Lord, growing in our relationship with Jesus and following him close enough to where he begins to use our lives. The details become unexplainable. The details, they become overshadowed by, that was the Lord. These are the lessons we're learning outside the city of Jerusalem. These are the lessons that Jesus, I believe, wants us to learn before he gets to the gate. At this point, Matthew's account, Matthew 21, 4 and 5, it says, All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. So, Matthew, um, I did a summary Wednesday night on the book of Matthew. I invited our church that uh, last week I said, we're going we're gonna to be going through the book of Matthew. I want to focus in the middle of the week on the life of Christ. And, and we got some rotating teachers coming in. And this, we put this whole thing together from the week after Easter all the way through to the end of January 2024. But the, the, the focal point of the book of Mac, Matthew is the presentation of the king. And over and over and over in the book of Matthew, there's a bridge. Matthew builds a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. He builds a bridge between prophecies and those prophecies that were fulfilled by one person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has, in his life, his birth, his life, and his death, he fulfills over 300 Old Testament prophecies. But even as he gets onto this donkey, He's putting this in motion. He knows that this is a fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah, the fulfillment of something that was written about the Messiah 500 years earlier. And he knows that this puts into motion a series of events that will culminate in a few days with his death, his burial, and a resurrection. Go get that donkey. When he was up north, the last time up north, Caesarea Philippi by Mount Hermon. It says that this last final trip towards Jerusalem, that his face was set like flint towards the city. In other words, he was fixed. Flint was the, the hardest stone that they knew in that day. He was unmovable, unshakable. He knew his father's plan and he knew the word. And he knew that he was there to fulfill the word in becoming the sacrificial lamb for me and for you. Go get that donkey. All of this, Matthew says, was fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, then he quotes Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter 
of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now that's what they see. That's what they want. But then it goes on to say, he is just and having salvation. And as we'll see this week, this is what many of them miss. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Next we look at the people. It says that there were many spreading their clothes on the road. We look at the gospel combined. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's men, there's women, there's old, there's young. In John's account, it says that certain Greeks even came. And they came up to the feast to worship. Interesting. If you took a palm branch and you laid it on a road, or you laid it before somebody, you'd have to go through the scriptures and say, where did we see that? We'd have to go through some archaeology, and we'd have to go through some history, even secular history, and say, what was the meaning of these, these palm branches? And you'd go, wow, I see there's a, there's a pattern to this. They did this for royalty. They did this, they did this at times of victory, when they were expecting victory or they had just experienced victory. They would lay palm branches before parades, palm branches before kings, cloaks and garments. The same inference. But a cloak for a man, the outer garment, the most outer part of his garment, spoke of his authority. To hand my cloak over to my rabbi was to say to my rabbi, I subjugate myself to your authority. I place myself under your authority. What was it like? Tens of thousands of people. The roar of the town. As Jesus begins to ride this donkey looking down and seeing the palm branches, knowing exactly what that signified. Seeing men take off their outer cloak and throw it before him on that road. Knowing exactly what that signified. It says in verse 37, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty things and the works which they had seen. I believe our worship in this room is top shelf. You're like, are we supposed to give man credit? Hold on, I ain't done. <laughs> Worship is you. It's me. It's all those high schoolers. It's all these gifted people. It's redeemed people making their redeemer the main focus. Amen? Amen? That's what it is. And, and if, you were, if you were in this parade route, and, and maybe you were not one that encountered Jesus, for the mighty work that he had done in your life or the life of one of your relatives, you might be taken back by the genuineness of their praise. You might have been taken back by, wow, these people are over the top. It's kind of like the difference between the celebration in Anaheim Stadium. Well, they don't hit many home runs, but Dodger Stadium <laughs> at the beginning of the year. Sorry. Versus the celebration of a home run 
at the end of the year. And I'll let you pick your team that will be still around at the end of the year. I believe this was heartfelt by many. Imagine how many people came down from up north. Jesus came down three times a year from up north to commemorate those three feasts. How many of these were related to the lepers that were cleansed? How many lepers were there that he had cleansed? How many blind? The widow of Nain. How many family members around that widow who Jesus had interrupted the funeral perception and raised her son from the dead? How many of those would have been thanking him for the mighty work that he had done? The lame. On two separate occasions, Jesus multiplied fish and loaves of bread. On one occasion, they counted 5,000. They just counted the men. Another occasion, they counted 4,000. They just counted the men. How many of those people were like, oh, that guy? I, I would have loved to hang out with Jesus for many things, but the food thing would have been pretty cool. Watching him multiply food all the time, that would have been pretty cool as well. But how many of those people watched the various miracles that he did and were lining that street? They were part of this parade route. They posted up in their spot and began to shout and praise and worship for the mighty, the mighty things that he has done. What else are some of the people saying? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. At this particular point in time, the Jews were... They were, they were over Rome. They were done with the tyranny of Rome. They were looking for their own king. A political leader is what they were looking for in their king, their Messiah. One that would come and overthrow Rome and free them from that tyranny. And that passion for a king wasn't something that they just like, it wasn't just a nationalistic move. No, it was rooted and grounded in the word. Much like that prophecy 500 years ago, their scriptures talked about the Messiah coming as a king. And even the greatest of details, that he would be coming humbly on a donkey, that the people would praise him and worship him. In, 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 in Isaiah chapter 9, we commonly uh, read through that account around the Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the, the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will become, uh, his name will be, be Emmanuel, God with all, all that. Uh, his name will be called Wonderful. I'm sorry, I got the two scriptures mixed up. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And that the increase in his government and peace, there will be no end. It's, he's, he's eternal. His, his rule and reign will be eternal. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment from this time forward, forevermore. The, the Jewish people were expecting their Messiah, their king. It was in their, in their woven into their, their hearts through the promises and the prophecies of their word, the scriptures. When Jesus fed the 5,000, after that miracle, many of those Jews, it says, and I quote in John chapter 6, verse 15, they perceived that they were about to come and by force make him king. 
But Jesus says, no, 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 no. And he, and he went away to a mountain because that was not his time. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So as we look at the people, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, young, old, men, women, those that had encountered and were familiar with the mighty works of that man. And they were praising him as such and hoping that he would be the promised Messiah and ascribing him the praise that is assigned to and designated out of their scriptures for the Messiah. What other people are there? Verse 39, religious leaders. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. And so they were posted up. They had their spot. They're watching Jesus, you know, ascend down from the Mount of Olives. I don't know, did you guys throw pictures up here of uh, Jerusalem yet? You can put those up behind us. Um, that's kind of hard to see, but go through those. As he's coming down, this would be his vantage point towards the city. Um, a little more to the right, he would be uh, somewhere up there, coming down, looking down at the Temple Mount. And there would be tens of thousands of people shouting these words, throwing their cloaks, laying down palm branches. And as he came to where a group of Pharisees were, this is the, the leadership of Judaism, they have something to say as well, but they say it to him. And they recognize him as a teacher, as a rabbi. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. My creation will recognize me as creator. You need to rebuke your disciples. Stop these people from hailing you as king, from praising you. What are these guys? Praise police? You know, it's kind of interesting. Every, every religious movement has, I believe, has this to some degree. Leadership that makes it about them and not Jesus. I believe that as they, they saw everybody there, they saw all these Jews and, and men Maybe even throwing their prayer shawls down, some scholars believe. They're looking at, at all of these people that have been affected by Jesus' teaching and by Jesus' miracles, and they're like, they're, they're recognizing his authority over their life. And there's always that makeup in certain religious leaders that are like, no, 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 no. You know, it, it's all about us. You need to be following us, you need to be praising us and praising our authority and recognizing our authority and following us. And, 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 and they just couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle the very Son of God, the Messiah, that over and over throughout their scriptures points to who he is and how he will even come into the world, how he will die. They wouldn't have it. We will not allow people to put their focus on him and, and place themselves under his authority. You could tell people who are under that kind of spell. 
Because they do like to sing praises of their movement every time you talk to them. They do like to sing the praises of their leaders every time they talk about their movement or their leaders. They like to sing the praises of all of the mighty things those men have done rather than be captivated by Jesus to where they're singing the mighty praises of what he has done. There's so much to learn on this road. Jesus did not come to be the king of a nation. It's not what it was about. He did not come to be, be a, a political liberator. He came to rule and reign in mankind's heart. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. And you know, if you're born again, you've invited King Jesus into your heart. And, and he is the savior of your soul. Amen? That's a great thing. And, and, and in, order, in order for that to happen, for me and you, Lance needed to be dethroned. I needed to give him my heart. And that's where the spiritual kingdom of God is, wherever the king rules and reigns. And there he is, the Messiah, coming to be that and accomplish that on a cross. And they are looking at him when he comes by their posted spot. And he says, you need, they do recognize one thing, that everybody listens to him. You need to tell people to stop worshiping you. How tragic. Matthew says in Matthew 21, verse 9, that they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save now, save now. To the son of David. That's a messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That, that part, they were actually singing out and yelling out Hallel's. They're, they're psalms at the latter part, like Psalm 118 in that section. We'll be singing some of these uh, and referring to some of these on our Seder service on Wednesday night. But that psalm, Psalm 118, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord um, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That psalm's referring to what is happening with these religious leaders right now. But they're not going to stop the redemptive plan of God. They'll reject him, but he will become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what we see them yelling out right here. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and has given us the light. What is the light? <laughs> well, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. That's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah, and the cross, him being sacrificed. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt, exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endured forever. They got it right this day. 
Some of them. But not all of them. All of this, Jesus' life from birth through his 33 years of living on this planet all the way to his death, burial, and resurrection was a fulfillment of, of God's word. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, great prophecy. The angel Gabriel came to Daniel in Babylon and said, Babylon, 70 weeks are determined. In Hebrew, 70 heptads. 77-year periods. It's 490 years are determined. It would be like us saying, 70 decades. Decade means 10 years. Heptad means 7 years. 490 years are determined. 490 years that God is going to set aside for the prophetic history of the nation of Israel. Okay, what is it? Verse 24. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and here it is, to anoint the most holy. The process, verse 25, it tells us that 69 of these heptads, or seven-year periods, will take place beginning with a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah is cut off. That command now moving forward, the time of Daniel, they didn't know it, but moving forward, we move forward to 45 B.C. and we see Alexerxes giving that very command in Nehemiah chapter 2. And so from that very command, March 14th, 445 B.C., a documented fact of history where he's like, go and rebuild and restore Jerusalem, the book of Nehemiah. From that command, the, the clock begins to tick towards the day that the Messiah would appear and be cut off, referring to his death. So 69 of those seven-year periods are 483 years. He's like, think through this. And some really smart scholarly guys have really put a, a lot of thinking into this. And they've done the math using a 30 or 360-day year they used back then. They took out the leap years and et cetera. And a guy by the name of Sir Robert Prince, head of the Scotland Yard, he was knighted for this actually work, but he calculated these days. 173,880 days. What's that mean? That means that you move 173,880 days forward, ahead, from the time that Artaxerxes gives that command. And you should be like, that's when the Messiah should be like, appearing to be cut off. And you come to the day, April 6, 32 AD, the Sunday, the exact day that Jesus told his disciples to fetch a donkey so he could ride into Jerusalem as the Messiah and would be cut off by way of crucifixion. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, staring them in the face. But their make it about me 
we want to control you-ism. That pride, that hardening of their hearts caused these religious leaders that knew the word to not receive him. They just had to keep it about them. And they just would not then receive him. Even when he was there to die for them. And that leaves us with a really heavy question as we gather here and people gather online. With all of this prophetic accuracy and all of this as we look at the place we look at the people and the purpose, obviously, we know now is that he would come and die for our sins. We'll study all about that throughout the rest of this week. The question would be, why would they not receive him? The facts are there. By the way, we're 2,000 years looking back on it. He did come. He did die. He was buried. And he did not stay in the grave. That validates every claim he made. Next week when I say that, I want a little more oomph in your response, okay? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, writing to the church, he had to validate some of his claims. Kind of interesting. He's followed Jesus Three and a half years, he saw him crucified, denied him. Jesus restored the relationship, saw him raised from the dead, hung out with him 40 days after he raised from the dead. Jesus used him. He was filled with the Spirit. He gave the first sermon in the church, was a great church leader. And later on, as he would get a little bit older, he would write his two epistles. And he would say this, and I quote, For we did not follow cunning, devised fables when we, we made known to you, and I quote, the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he, he's like, he even received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he, he's like referring back to the final week or two, probably month, before this event, when they were up north, and Jesus is like, come on up here, and he was transfigured before them. He's like, don't just take our word for it. Like, like we're trying to affirm to you guys that Jesus really is God, that he really is the Messiah. But the Father, even on that mountain, he, he spoke from heaven when Jesus was allowing his glory to radiate through his body. Me and Peter, Peter, James, and John, we were there. And the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay. And then he went on to say, in verse 19, and so we have, as well, the prophetic word. When it comes to validating who Jesus is, I'm telling you, we saw him. We walked with him. He did the miracles that we're telling you about. The teachings he taught, absolute truth. The lives he saved. Those that, the conversions that followed. All the miracles that he did. 
And the Father even affirmed Him in front of us. But we also have the prophetic Word. We have all of what God had said way before it ever happened fulfilled in Him. He is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. We have the prophetic Word made more sure. And this is where we need to, unfortunately, end, but land the plane. Which you and I, 2,000 years later, do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Hmm. The darkness of La Habra and Fullerton and La Mirada, yell out your city. Where are you from? Yell it out. Yell it out loud. That's way too many. Okay. But God heard that. There are people right now living in darkness. The religious leaders, don't miss this. The religious leaders had every prophecy. They knew it. They could quote it. And they wouldn't heed it. And so all of the people living in darkness, spiritual darkness, that they were called to emanate the light, the truth of who Jesus is, the light, the truth of what God's word connects to him, they missed it. They missed it. And today, 2,000 years later, on this side of the resurrection, that too validates every claim he made, everything he did. We would, we would hold that, that scripture to heart right now and say, oh, we have the, the prophetic word made more sure, which we do well to heed in a very dark place as it shines as a light. What is that saying? It's saying that the dark spiritual blinders, the darkness of the world, the evil of the world, darkness and the bondage and the inability to see and all of what darkness represents spiritually, it needs to be confronted with light. It needs to be confronted with the light, the truth of who Jesus is. Well, is that I run around and yell it? No, which you do well to heed. As you live it out, as I live it out. What is it like to live out the lessons from the triumphal entry at work tomorrow? What is it like to live out the lessons that we learn from the triumphal entry in your home, in your neighborhood? The darkness needs to see people that have been conquered by the king. They need to know about the person of Christ the significance of who he is. They need to know about the significance of the place. These are great conversations to be having. There's how many people in this community right now that you can encounter, I can encounter, and they can't connect the dots. They don't know who Jesus is. They haven't given their life to Jesus. Young, old, male, female, Jew, Gentile, Greeks, all around us. The lesson from the triumphal entry is Jesus just walked past a road past your spot where you are posted up. And what would he hear from you? He's reading everybody's mail. He sees exactly 
their hearts. As we continue on, we don't have time, but you would be able to read on. He draws near the city, and, and it's the, the whole purpose, and he weeps over the city. He weeps. These tears of joy, all these people worshiping me. No, 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 they're not tears of joy. They're tears of sorrow. A week earlier, in John eleven thirty-five, 35, Jesus wept. He, he, he was at the tomb of, of his buddy. He's been dead for four days. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He weeps. Why? Because he saw the effects of sin. He saw Martha and Mary and all their friends and everyone bawling at the consequences, the effects of sin. It broke his heart. And he's like, Ugh. a week later, he's coming down. People are worshiping him and ascribing all these scriptures to him as the king, as the Messiah, as God. But then he gets closer to the city and he weeps. If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, the Prince of Peace is there to provide peace for their soul by saving them, by dying on a cross. And they weren't connecting the dots. And he goes on to say, these things are going to be hidden from your eyes now. Your hearts are hardened. And he begins to talk about an event that's going to happen 40 years ahead, 70 A.D., where your enemies are going to build an encampment around you and surround you close on every side and level you. Talking about the Rome and its laying siege on Jerusalem and destroying it and the temple. And it's amazing to walk around the perimeter of the, the Temple Mount today. We'll be there again in a few weeks and we'll, 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 we'll come to an area where we'll see these giant stones, these hewn out stones. And, and, and everyone's like, what is this big pile, massive, as big as our parking lot? And we'll say, that dates back to 70 A.D. And it's the result of God's people rejecting him. And he would say, this is going to happen. Not one stone is going to be left upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So if you were present 2,000 years ago at Palm Sunday, in which crowd would you stand? What crowd best represents you? Would it have been the, the crowd that you might say is saved? They've encountered Jesus. His mighty work has been done in their life. They're praising him as such. Would you be standing with Lazarus? Because it says, because of him, many believed on Jesus. Or would you be standing in the crowd, hands in our pockets? Not, I'm not there. I, I'm, I'm not going to receive him today in my day. Maybe this is your day of visitation. You know, you know, all this week people get saved. Next week we'll have twice the crowds that we have and people get saved. That's so seven days from now. And tomorrow is promised to no man or woman. But what about right now? Before God, he knows your heart. 
He knew their hearts, and he knew that many of them in just a few days would be crying out to have him crucified because they refused in their day when he looked at them with tear-filled eyes to refuse to receive him. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the lessons that we glean from your life in these final days, especially as we think about the place, Jerusalem, the people that line the streets and your purpose in coming, which is to die for us on a cross. Man, if any of us as believers, we've... Uh, well, the praise in our heart is not what it should be. Our zeal for you. Our being used by you. It's just, it's just not what it should be. Plethora of reasons, but it's not what it, it should be. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that as you touch our hearts, wherever that fits, there would be a surrender in their heart right now and a confession to you of where they went wrong and that they would embrace you. The work and the refreshing and the renewal and the reviving that you're desiring to bring to them right now. Before we leave this room, if you're here or you're online and you've, you're one of these that have never received Jesus, and you're like, that's me. But you've, you've felt compelled this morning. There's something different. There's something stirring in your heart, in your mind. And you just know this is the day of your visitation. You just know, I need to accept Jesus. That's you. I'm going to lead a very simple prayer. You pray this to him. Repeat this after me if this is you. Here or in your house or wherever you are. Say, Jesus, I believe, as your word says, as you claim to be, that you are God, that you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. And now you need to recognize who you are before him right now as you continue this prayer. The Bible says we're all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, so we're born sinners. And to confess means to agree with God. And if you agree with what his word says and you realize that you're a sinner in need of salvation right now, then speak to Jesus these words. Say, Jesus, I ask you now, the one that died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, I ask you now, to forgive me of my sin. I ask you now to save me. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to fill me with your spirit. I ask you to fill me with your love. Love for you. Love for your word. Love for the lost. Love for the church. And Jesus, we thank you for any who have prayed that prayer here online. We thank you for the conviction 
the encouragement, the redirection that we've received as you visited us this morning where we have posted up. And we would ask that we would take these flyers that were in our seats and we would take the message that is in our heart and we would share, we would be open to be used by you to invite others to come and to witness the great things that you are doing in this church, in this place, throughout this week. Love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you guys. Go ahead and stand up. We are dismissed. If you are new here, we have a resource center to my left, your right, a greeting table out front. If you need a Bible, a gift package they got for you if you're new as well, go over there. God bless you guys.